Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we need to hear from you. I pray that uh, you would make that possible this morning, Lord. Open our hearts, open our minds, change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. This morning we're looking at the book of Micah. And in this intense little book, the prophet paints a pretty dismal picture of the conditions that are you know, in Israel at that time. And he presents his message from the Lord in scathing words of judgment, condemnation, and punishment. The prophet describes a nation of malicious, self-serving, dishonest, backstabbing, money-grubbing, corrupt murderers. And he's not talking only about politicians here. And most painfully of all, they have broken their relationship with their God. They've broken the contract that was hammered out way back in Abraham's time. Well, there are still people doing empty religious things. They're going to church. They're tithing. They're making sacrifices. But none of it has any real substance. There's no integrity. The actions don't mean anything. They don't seem to really be affecting anyone's life. There's a great snapshot of the situation in the first few verses of chapter 7. Take a look at it with me. How miserable I am. I feel like the fruit picker after the harvest who can find nothing to eat. Not a cluster of grapes or a single early fig can be found to satisfy my hunger. The godly people have all disappeared. Not one honest person is left on the earth. They are all murderers, setting traps even for their own brothers. Both their hands are equally skilled at doing evil. They're ambidextrous, evil workers. (laughs) Officials and judges alike demand bribes. The people with influence, they get what they want. And together, they scheme to twist justice. Even the best of them is like a briar. The most honest is as dangerous as a hedge of thorns. And we skip a couple lines and it goes on. Don't trust anyone, not your best friend or even your wife. For the son despises his father. The daughter defies her mother. The daughter-in-law defies her mother-in-law. Your enemies are right in your own household. These are the conditions. And these are not, God is saying, what he's expecting of his people. And so we find in chapter 6... God is taking his people to court. This is a courtroom scene. And he's suing them for breach of contract. And he starts off by first calling the mountains to witness what's going on here. And then he begins with a question. In verse 3 he says, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. He's saying, In what ways have I broken my part of the deal? Is there anything? Can Can you demonstrate any way that I've broken it? And he goes into some history. And he describes... His faithfulness to the Israelites over the years. He, he talks about bringing them out of Egypt and out of slavery. He talks about sustaining and leading them in the wilderness. And providing them with competent, godly leaders. In all of this, God says, I have been faithful. I've kept my end of the bargain. Why have you been unfaithful to me? And then we hear Micah kind of responding to God for the people. And he says... Well, Lord, what if we bring you our best calves and sacrifice them to you? Will that be enough? How about if we offer thousands of rams, this is verse 7, and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Would that please you? 
Would you be satisfied with that? Would that be enough to forgive our sins? What if we sacrifice our firstborn children to you? Infant sacrifice was not unheard of in that time. What if we did that? Would that be enough, Lord, to, to be forgiven? And, he, and he, he answers his own question, of course not. And then we, have, we come into verse 8, this famous passage. And Micah describes, he says this, This is what the Lord wants. This is all it is to be fair and just and merciful and to walk humbly with your God. The more familiar version in, in, the, new, in the NIV says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Essentially, God is saying, you are not my people because of the stuff you can give me. Because of the religious sort of practices that you do. You are my people when you reflect my character. When you go about my work in the world. When you do justice. When you love mercy. And you walk humbly with me. So let's explore those three things. I recently read a news article about a guy in Utah who bought a house. And shortly after he'd moved in, maybe a month afterward, he noticed an access panel to the roof, uh, to the, you know, the attic space. And so he hadn't seen it before, so he climbed up in there just to see what was there. And up in, the, in that space, he found a bunch of these ammo cases, which are basically just metal boxes that you can kind of seal. And when he took them down and brought them into his living room and opened them, opened them up, they were full of money and other kinds of cash equivalent notes and things. And so he sat there in his living room counting this money. And as he's counting, he's thinking, man, I, I could pay my car off. I, I could, you know, I need a new refrigerator. I could get a new refrigerator. And as the numbers continued to grow, he began thinking about, you know, college education for his kids and things like that. But in the end, you know what he did, right? He said, I can't keep it. It's not my money. He had purchased the house from the estate uh, of a gentleman and he called up the, the uh, man's kids and he said, uh, you know, I found this money. Uh, and these are his words. I couldn't let myself consider the money mine. The previous homeowner didn't put it there for me. He put it there for a rainy day. And he talked in the article about how being a parent and you know, wanting to leave good things for his children, he knew what this other man was feeling. And so he gave it back. And so you see, acting justly at its most basic level is simply about being honest. It's about doing the right thing, about practicing what you preach or what's preached at you, I guess. Uh, Micah is stressing here the difference between empty religious practices that have no bearing on everyday life and the true follower of God for whom the worship that we do together on Sunday morning is just a pause in the worship that we do daily out in, in general life. Micah indicts the people for their dishonesty. Rich people and politicians are stealing from and oppressing the poor. There's deceit, crooked business dealings. Even uh, religious leaders and prophets who, who give messages, you know, blessings or cursing based on whether or not you give them money. And they're stealing from children and they're evicting widows. If we look at it in our context, again, we're talking fundamentally about being honest and about how we treat each other and other people in society. That means for us that no matter how unjust or oppressive or wrong they are, God's people do not cheat on their taxes. We don't steal from waitstaff at restaurants by not tipping them generously. We don't cheat on exams. 
we use power and authority that's been given to us in ways that free people, not oppress them. We advocate in appropriate ways for those who have no voice in our society, for children, for poor people, and others. Doing the right thing often means setting aside our own sort of more self-focused dreams and ambitions. You know, maybe they're not bad things, but doing the right thing sometimes calls us to set those aside and develop an outward, other-focused view. Calls us to go beyond ourselves by reaching out to the underdog and thus fulfilling Christ's mission for our lives. God's people do justice. Secondly, God's people love mercy. Mercy is one of the most beautiful and most necessary concepts, I think, that we find throughout all of Scripture. And there are two ways that I see mercy being acted out. One is when we see needs and we're moved to compassion, mercy happens. Okay, so we see people in need. And, and we have these feelings of compassion. We're moved to compassion. Mercy happens when we act to alleviate suffering. Uh, every year in the youth group, we do the 30-hour famine. And the 30-hour famine is an opportunity for our students to become aware of some of the issues around the world related to hunger. And we try to raise money to help alleviate hunger in different places. Uh, and when we're talking about the need in 30-hour famine, we, we show, you know, we try to present it, and, and it comes across in some stark ways sometimes. We show pictures of kids who are suffering, and we show different situations around the world. You know the kinds of things I'm talking about. And while we're doing that, our goal here, and we, we try to be real clear about this, is we're not trying to stir up a lot of guilt feelings, because it can be easy to feel guilty about what we have in comparison to what others don't. And while guilt has its place, I'm not saying we should jettison guilt completely, but it has its place. In this situation, it may not be the most helpful thing. What we're trying to help our students understand is that God's people are motivated by mercy and motivated by compassion. And so we, when we see issues like this, we act, we do something. We try to alleviate suffering. And we do this as a response to what God has done for us out of the mercy that he's shown to us. Mercy happens when we act to alleviate suffering. The second way that mercy takes shape is like this. Mercy is not fair, is it? And we're, we're grateful for that, aren't we? I mean, uh, I shudder to think of where I would be if I had received everything that I deserved, right? I'm unbelievably grateful for the many times that I've been shown mercy, both by God's people and by God. By definition, mercy means to not receive what you deserve. That means that as God's people, if we're going to love mercy, we've got to find it in our hearts and in our minds and in our actions to forgive people that do evil to us. And that's really tough. And for, because for it to really be mercy... It really has to be evil, right? I mean, the greater the evil done to us, the larger the opportunity for mercy. And God's people love mercy. In chapter 7, the one we just read, it talks about people doing evil with both hands and being good at it, right? Godly people love mercy. They do mercy with both hands. We're, We're ambidextrous mercy workers. And we're good at it. 
God's people take risks. They engage in things like foster care, adoption, care for the ill and the infirm, relieving poverty. They visit prisons. We carry light into dark places. I love Royal Family Kids Camp for this reason, right? You got a group of really smart people. I mean, there's more PhDs in that group than you can shake a stick at. And there's, they use those gifts that God has given them. They apply them to serving and showing mercy to and loving some very needy students, some kids. And they do it with intentionality, with passion, and with excellence. As God's people, we do justice and we love mercy. Finally, we walk humbly with God. And frankly, I think that if we can get this one right, the justice and the mercy will be outgrowths of this relationship. So let's, we're going to break this in half a little bit. What is walking with God? Well, walking with God indicates to me a con- continual sort of ongoing thing, right? You're walking, you're going somewhere. And with God indicates relationship. As I began to think about what does it mean when you walk with God, what does it look like? Uh, I thought about Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. You remember him? Here he is in a little clip having a conversation with God. Troubles, troubles. That's all you hear from me, right? But who else can we simple people take our troubles to? You know, sometimes I wonder, who do you take your troubles to? Uh, go away. Anyway, Bottle and Seidel have been married for some time now. They work very hard. And... They are as poor as squirrels in winter. But they're so happy, they don't know how miserable they are. (sighs) Model keeps talking about a sewing machine. I know. You are very busy now. Wars, revolutions, floods, plagues, all those little things that bring people back to you. But couldn't you take a second and get him his sewing machine? Uh, Yeah, and while you are in the neighborhood, as you can see, my horse's leg... Am I bothering you too much? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, as the good book says. Why should I tell you what the good book says? (laughs) All right, that's Tevye. Throughout this play, this movie, we find Tevye having these different conversations with God. And, you know, I'm not sure if I would agree with every sort of theological implication that he brings up, even in this little clip. But in some ways, to me, that's the point. Whatever's going on, wherever Tevye finds himself... Whatever's on his heart and mind, he brings it to God. He talks about his work, his children, his social situation, his wife, and his horse. At various moments throughout the movie, he finds himself happy and angry and thankful and sad and questioning. In all of that, he's sharing those experiences with God. 
Now, of course, much of what he says is informed by his rich Jewish tradition and, and his study of the Hebrew Bible. And I want to be careful that by emphasizing this relational aspect uh, of, of our relationship with God, I don't minimize the importance of studying the scripture. Every Christian needs to study the scripture. But I love this picture of walking with God as this ongoing conversational kind of thing. God is with us. He's present. And we can talk with him. So that's walking with God. But what does it mean to walk humbly with God? <clears throat> uh, my wife is the volleyball coach up here at the college. And for many years, I traveled with her pretty much everywhere they went when they, when they traveled. And one time we were in southern Pennsylvania. And uh, we had stopped at this, at this strip mall. There was a restaurant. We were going to uh, have some dinner there. And we parked the bus at the far end of the parking lot where there weren't any cars. And we're walking toward the restaurant. And you kind of have to understand the setup. There's, there was... Uh, the restaurant was here, and there was kind of a drive lane in front of it, you know, fire lane and where cars could drive through. And then there was a row of cars parked, and another row of cars, and another drive lane, and then at the far end of the parking lot was another row of cars. And as we walked toward the restaurant, a young couple came out of the restaurant, and they had a small child with them, seven or eight-year-old girl. Uh, and they clearly just had dinner and were contented and heading home or whatever, and as they stepped out of the restaurant and uh, the couple stepped down onto the curb, the little girl was kind of skipping along in front of them. And suddenly she just kind of darted away from them and headed into those, that row of parked cars. And at the same time, there was a pickup truck that turned the corner down the opposite drive lane and accelerated down the lane. And when I watched those two things happen, uh, I, you know, my heart leapt into my throat. They were, it seemed very clear to me that the two were going to meet. The girl was essentially invisible, you know, running between the cars. And, uh, you know, I, I was terrified. I, I, I couldn't even really speak. There was nothing I could do. I was too far away. The same time that I noticed it, uh, the parents noticed. And they were, of course, 20 yards behind her as well. And there was very little time. And both of them were panicked. And they both managed to shout one word. They both said, stop. And she stopped. And she kind of turned back, and the, that truck went by. And we all breathed a huge sigh of relief. And uh, I don't think she ever even actually saw the truck. So. But I feel like as we walk with God, we're kind of like that little girl. We're walking through the parked cars of life. And we have this conversation with God, and we can talk with him, and we can listen to him. Humility comes in when we learn to obey and God says, stop, and we stop. He, uh, this kind of thing, it's an acknowledgement. Obedience is an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. That he has this top-down view. That he sees the big picture. He sees the trucks and other things in our life. And as we walk with him, humility is about obedience. This, of course, is not to say that we will not face troubles or pain. No, we are guaranteed those things. But we do have a faithful creator who walks beside us, who walks with us, and who desires our humble obedience, who desires this conversation. In Jeremiah, there's a passage where Jeremiah is talking to the Israelites, and, and he says that if they would only learn to be obedient, he promises that the people's sacrifice would be acceptable. They would begin to have value, the sacrifices would begin to have value when they were connected with daily obedience. 
Micah is facing the same issue. In Psalm 51, 16 to 17, it says this. You do not delight in sacrifice. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. God is saying here in Micah, in this passage, that anyone who would be called by his name, anyone who would say we are his people, will be a reflection of him. We will demonstrate his character in the world. And again, this is not a discarding of religion or or of, uh, in this case, sacrifices. It's not a discarding of what we do on Sunday mornings. Rather, it's a discarding of empty religious practice. And it's not simply an attitude or an idea that we sort of subscribe to, but doesn't get acted out. Rather, it's an active honesty, a pursuit, a passionate pursuit of mercy, and an ongoing obedient conversation with our Creator. I pray that we will be known as God's people, that this church and community will reflect His character as we walk with Him, and out of that, that we will do justice. And love mercy. Will you pray with me again? Father, give us the ability, the wisdom to rely on you. The courage to be humble and to be obedient. Enable us, Lord, to be about your work in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.